Now, today I want to speak to you about the birth of Christ, right? Uh, we are doing this because we have been going through the Bible verse by verse, and we have now arrived at a passage that talks about that. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 7. Now, I know that this is probably the most well-known passage in the Bible. Believe me, as a pastor, it's a hard thing to preach to those who already know the Word of God. And especially when we come to this passage. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, which I am sure the Sunday school are experts on. And they have been rereading this passage and practicing and the lines, I'm sure, from this for the nativity service letter in the month. Right? So I know that. But here's the thing. A few months ago, we were sharing the gospel at the Broadway. Right? And towards the end of sharing the gospel, uh, Alex and I, our brother Alex, were speaking to an unmarried young couple from Lithuania. Right? So we had done the evangelism. And now we have this opportunity. In fact, Alex started speaking to this couple, right? And I joined in. And I could see immediately, actually, I was joining in as Alex was walking away, right? Uh, because it was clear just from talking to this couple, they had made it clear that they did not believe in God. And the man was particularly keen to say, he didn't want to talk about it. He just wanted to be left alone. Uh, but uh, you know that normally when that happens, I get really excited when somebody wants to be left alone at the Broadway. So I just, I thought I'd join in, right? And I want to just ask them why they didn't believe in God. So just a second opportunity. Um, Alex was shaking his head, but I joined in just to ask for a second opportunity for me to ask them this question. Why don't you believe in God? Now, at first, the man started talking about what he had been talking about with Alex. Uh, evolution and the Big Bang and how everything is pure matter. Just life is just pure chance, right? And I was really interested in the, 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 the argument. I thought, this is easy. Okay, we can talk about that, right? So I started talking through all of that. And after answering his objection, it was quite clear that he understood. And I think he got the objection. The man then said, look, okay, I hear all of that. But I can never believe in God. And I thought, that's interesting. Never believe in God. I said, that's odd. Even if you've got the evidence, you can never personally believe in him. He said, no, I can never believe in him personally. So I said, why? And then he answered, because if there is a God, why has he allowed me to suffer? Why did my, and then he added, why did my family grow up so poor? And then, he said, when I was five years old, and he repeated this twice at least, he said, when I was five years old, my father could not even afford to buy me a toy. Right? Now, when I put it like that, well, it's, when, I, when I was thinking about it again, it sounds funny, doesn't it? Right? It's a, it's a bit funny. Like, okay, you're not out now, and you're going on about a toy you didn't have as a five-year-old. But actually... At the time he said it, I felt it, you know, in terms of what he was communicating. He was serious, and the moment became really emotional, right? This is about, his belief in God is about his childhood, and how he grew, and the difficulties he experienced. He just couldn't understand for him, the dad loved him, but he just couldn't understand why he was particularly poor. He didn't blame his dad, he just blamed the poverty he grew up in. And he's looking around the UK and the opulence, and he just why did I have that background than people here don't have that? Right? What was the man trying to do? Well, the man in his own way was trying to make sense of how the truth of the Bible that God is sovereign and loving can be reconciled with the suffering in his own life. That's what he was trying to do. And afterwards, we did have a good conversation, but afterwards, as I was thinking about that conversation, it reminded me that all the truths in the Bible have real here and now implications. Okay? We may hear that and think, there's an explanation for that, right? 
But we need to process that. The problem we see is that many of us who attend church are so used to hearing the truth of the Bible that the truth claims of the Bible don't shock us as they should. The man hears God is sovereign. He's asking, how does this relate to my childhood? So, when we come to this passage that is so familiar to us, we need to avoid being comfortable with the truth of what we're reading. My task this morning really is to help you avoid that mistake where you think you know it, and you do know it, but you become so familiar with the birth of Christ that it just doesn't strike you uh, with its profound weight that it has. And I think many of us can, and this is why actually I'll just say, many of us are, are comfortable to come to church and just hear, and, and maybe when you go time in the evening, we're like, oh, I just better stay at home. Why boy? Because we, we are comfortable with these truths. Mm, danger there. Danger. And then the problem is, I, I, that's a problem I want to help you avoid today. I, I do really hope that you are not going to hear anything new. Uh, in fact, the Sunday school are the experts here, aren't they, about this, this passage. What I'm hoping this morning is that you are going to appreciate this amazing, glorious event of God coming into the world in Jesus and, which we, we've talked about already, by being born and the conditions through which he's born, the time, the place, and the conditions that surround that. And what those things are teaching us about God and the birth of Christ itself. There are three things I want you to remember this morning and to, I really want to help you process as we look at this account. Three things about the birth of Christ. First of all, the birth of Jesus is an act of divine sovereignty. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the birth of Jesus uh, is not simply an act of divine sovereignty. It's an act of divine faithfulness. Right? And finally, we see that the birth of Christ is an act of divine humility. So I've given you those up front because I haven't given you an outline this morning uh, with you. So just keep that in mind. That's what we're going to look at. Uh, those are the three sensational truths we see in this passage. So first, the birth of Jesus is an act of divine sovereignty. What I mean by that is that the birth of Jesus happened in the way that God intended from beginning to end. God arranged everything about the birth of Jesus. Think about that. Every single detail was under the sovereign plan of God. We know already that God chose the mom for Jesus. Mary wasn't random choice. Uh, didn't have Jesus randomly. God chose her to be the teenage mom of Jesus. God chose this virgin to bear the mother of God. We have already seen in Luke uh, and learned a lot in Luke already that the Lord Jesus entering, entered uh, Mary's tummy, not as the beginning of his own life, Christ had always existed. <laughs> we call this the incarnation, isn't it? Jesus is a person who was alive before he was born. Not just in thousands of years or millions of years, but forever. He is the pre-existent Son of God. You know, all of us have a beginning, don't we? When we started existing inside uh, our mother's tummy, as it were, and we stayed there for six, for nine months, not six months, for some, they're shorter. But normally it's uh, nine months. And then we were born, weren't we? Right? But Jesus is the exception to this rule. Jesus is God the Son. He is God himself. Uh, and before Jesus started living in his mother's tummy, he, Jesus created his mom. That's shocking. Tell that to your gym friends, right? They'll, they'll stop you for a minute and say, what did you just say? That's the miracle of the incarnation. It's God entering the world. The incarnation, as we call it, the inflation. It is the point in human history when Jesus started living uh, in Mary's tummy, as it were. When his divine nature joined with our human flesh. 
God planned when that happened. We read about it in Luke 1. And in Luke 2, we see that God also arranged the time and place of the birth of Jesus. And notice as we read this account, as our brother David read it for us, God has done this not by sending the angel Gabriel to command Mary to start giving birth now. It just sort of happens. God, we don't hear an angel say, telling Mary to go to Bethlehem in particular. It just happens through events. God has arranged the time and place for the birth of Jesus by working in the background sovereignly to make things happen. And this is what, this is what really what Luke is showing us here. Look at verse 1 to 3. We see there that God has caused the heart of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus uh, to issue a decree that all his subjects should be recorded. Look at Luke chapter 2 verse 1 to 3. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That is the Roman world, a known world. This was the first registration when Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, at this time, the people of God, Israel, were being ruled by another nation, the Empire of Rome. And the king there is the Emperor Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar has decided, we read in this account, to call a census. And we think the reason for that is that he wants to collect more tax uh, from the people to pay for the expansion of the kingdom. Historians tell us that there is a sense of turmoil in the empire at this time, right? And Caesar wants to exert his authority a bit more. And the rule for this registration, this census, is that every Jewish male is required to return to the city of his fathers uh, to record his name, his occupation, his property, and his family. Now, Luke here tells us that this census was the first census before another census that Luke later records in Acts. The word when there in verse 2 is better read like the footnote in some of the ESV Bible, right? Uh, Quirinius had been appointed uh, by the emperor at least eight years before Jesus was born. Uh, he had been serving as an ambassador in Syria, but he was eventually confirmed as governor some years later. And it was during this first service when the first census took place uh, before the second one in Acts 5, verse 37. Now, with the census in full swing, right, Luke tells us that Joseph takes pregnant Mary and they head to his home in Beth, his hometown in Bethlehem to register. Let's read on verse 4 to 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, is betrothed. I'll be very happy once we get over these words, uh, um, because I always struggle to pronounce it. Uh, betrothed, who was with child, right? Now, at this point, right, we all have questions. If you're reading this for the first time, you got questions. Why does Joseph not just leave Mary behind? The Lord does not seem to require women to register in person, so why is he taking her along, right? Is it because Joseph has taken seriously the word of the angel in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, to look after his wife, and he does not want to take any chances? God has commanded to look after her, and he's... He's doing all he can? Or does he just want to be there when God is born? He doesn't want to sort of hear it, get an email or something, and, and, and say, child, the child has been born, right? He wants to see the baby there. It's his love for Mary, and he's taking seriously that responsibility. Is that the reason? Or is it perhaps just Mary? Mary needs to get out of Nazareth. It's, things are difficult there. Uh, given the scandal, as it were, humanly speaking, surrounding the pregnancy. And so she just can't be by herself. She needs Joseph there to support her. And so she's tagging along nine months pregnant, walking is a, a distance. The same distance you walked going to Elizabeth's house, really. Right? Now, we don't know the answer to that. We don't know. 
the Bible does not give a human explanation for why Mary has tagged along. In fact, it does not, in the same way, it doesn't give us a human explanation of what's going on in Caesar's mind. Why this census, right? Why all of a sudden? Why does he need more money in his pocket, right? It does not tell us, right? And the reason is obvious. The absence of those explanations are meant to focus our mind on the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture? The bigger picture that it is God pulling the strings. It is God who has arranged the events in this way. And he has done it in ways that we cannot see. The work of God in the birth of Jesus uh, is like an operating system on a laptop or tablet, right? The operating system, uh, whether it's Windows or iOS or uh, whatever, Android, is always hidden in the background, isn't it? But it is what enables us to do everything we do on the devices. God is working like that here. He's working in the background through Caesar, through Quirinius, through Joseph. They may not be aware of it, but it is God weaving their action in his sovereign wills. They're in his sovereign will. Their actions are genuinely theirs, and yet God, through their action, is accomplishing his purpose. The birth of Jesus is reminding us something that we, are, we often forget, which is this, that the world is not just physical. We are not just a bunch of atoms. There is also an invisible spiritual world. And in the spiritual world, God rules over all things because his God is spirit, isn't he? Himself, right? And this God is in charge over the physical and spiritual world. And he's working out his purposes. Nothing that happens in this world is outside the sovereign control of God. Jesus is being born exactly the time and exactly the place that God wants him to be born. And friends, this is true for our lives as well. It's true for your life. It's true for this world. When we look at this world, it looks like it's running itself, isn't it? Chaos everywhere. Things look out of flux. Right? Well, the same is true for other things in your life. I'm sure maybe you're looking at your own life and you're thinking, things look chaotic, right? It's, it's what's going on here? What is God up to in my life? It's just one thing and the next, right? It looks like things are running themselves. But it is not. It is God who directs things even before things affect us. And Christmas is a wonderful reminder of this truth of God's sovereignty. If you ever doubt God's sovereignty, then just look at Christmas. Christmas is the wonderful reminder that God is silently working in ways we cannot see. No matter what is happening in your life, God is in charge. You need to remember this truth when you turn on the TV or when you go to your social media and you scroll it down and you feel uneasy about what's going on in the world. It is easy to despair, isn't it, as we look around us. Evil seems so triumphant. And you know what? I am sure that's how it seemed to the children of Israel at this time. Can you imagine Joseph? He's like, yeah, we got a, we, we got a, we got a baby coming, and now a census. It seems like God was sort of things were just moving all over the place, right? And yes, it is true that Augustus is an evil man and is responsible for all the things he did, and not perhaps the calling the census was the most useless thing he had ever done, right? And yet God was sovereign even over that. In the same way, this birth of Jesus is reminding us today, as we live here today, that whatever is going on in your life, do not despair. God is working his purposes out in ways you cannot see. And you know what? There is more here. <clears throat> it's not just the silent sovereignty of God. It is also the ordinary sovereignty of God, as I call it. The birth of Jesus is not only showing us that God is working in ways we cannot see, it is showing us that God often works out his sovereign will in ordinary ways. Imagine you're John Simpson, right? 
some of the other people here may know John Simpson is not on TV. They don't, they don't have him on TV that much anymore. But imagine you are the veteran world affairs editor of the BBC, still doing that job, John Simpson. <clears throat> okay? And you have landed now in Galilee, as it were, in Israel at this time. You are covering these events that are taking place in Israel, right? In the year zero, as it were. And you're going around interviewing people, right? What are you likely to hear about why people are on the move? You're asking, why are they on the move? Why is everybody moving all over the place to register? As you discuss with um, Joseph, perhaps, you see him moving to, uh, to Jerusalem. You ask him, what's going on? Why are you going there? What are some of the reasons you are likely to hear? I think you hear a lot of reasons, and particularly the census, of course, itself. But I tell you one thing. One thing you want here, what, what John Simpson want here, is that the one here that mentioned God. Because there's no prophet who has appeared. God is silent until, well, we've heard God speak through Zechariah, but it's when John the Baptist arrived, that's really when the 400-year gap is closed in terms of uh, now closed and we are able to hear God's prophet speak um, the voice of God which had been silent uh, for 400 years. Right? Of course, God speaks continuously, but the prophetic voice. My point is this. If you're John Simpson, you're looking at all of this, all of these things are just happening naturally. But we know from Luke 1 that it is God sending Jesus in the world. We know that it is God moving this Christmas family to Bethlehem. But he's doing it in ordinary ways. And that should immediately give us food for thought. Christmas is challenging something about how we live. All of us have a natural tendency to think of the power and rule of God in terms of miraculous interventions, signs and wonders. Right? We, we like that, don't we? When we pray for God to act, we all want to see what? Rapid change in our life. Instant results in the church. We love dramatic testimonies of changed lives. Now, of course, God, by his sovereign plan, sometimes changes lives in dramatic ways. And he does dramatic things. But the normal way he works is through ordinary means. And in a gradual way, as we see in the birth of Jesus. Jesus stayed in the womb for nine months. He could have just been, this could be, he could have been an exception. The instant baby, right? One month out. God is able to do that. I've got got a plan to serve the world. I need to get on with it. One month in, one out. No, Jesus stayed there for nine months. Ordinary. And again, we're seeing the ordinary way God is working. Right? But we struggle with that. Right? We struggle with that. We do not realize that God works often in silent and ordinary ways. And what happens is that we then give up praying. We give up praying. We give up praying for ourselves. We give up praying for, 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 for people in our lives. But in this birth of Jesus, this Christmas, in this Christmas event, God is surely saying to us, yes, sometimes it feels like I'm silent, but I'm still working in your life through ordinary ways. You know, I don't know what situation you are currently facing as you sit here this morning where you feel God is silent. And maybe you're a parent and who is anxious about your children's future. Maybe you're praying for grandchildren to come to know the Lord. Maybe you are a husband praying for your wife to change and you can't see any miracles. Maybe you are a wife praying for your husband to change. And things seem so painfully slow like nothing is happening. Maybe it's yourself. You're struggling with a sin. You just can't shake off. You're crying to God to help you have genuine repentance. You're trying to cry out, you're crying out to him to help you live for him. But you just don't see change immediately happening. You keep getting up and getting knocked down again. 
How do we feel when that's happening? They can leave us feeling empty, isn't it? Those situations can make us feel empty and we can start wondering, when is change going to happen? Will change ever happen? And you know what the devil does? The devil always comes around, doesn't he? He comes to us. He's always at hand when that is happening. The devil likes to whisper. Yeah, that's Christmas. Yeah, God was involved in that. Ordinary, yes. Silent, yes. But no, no, no. Your situation is different. This is too hard for God. He cannot help you on this one. You are on your own on this one. And of course, the devil powers on more lies, doesn't it? But we need to go back to Christmas. We need to remind the devil that God works silently and powerfully in the most unique event. The incarnation of God and the birth of the Lord Jesus in this world. Because this passage is reminding us, isn't it? That God works his sovereign will over our lives. It is a silent sovereignty of God. And it is an ordinary sovereignty of God. And you know, if you, as you sit here this morning, are a true follower of Jesus. And you truly believe that truth. What happens? If you truly believe that, what, what will happen to your life? I think if you truly believe this, it will change your life. When you believe in the silent sovereignty of God over your life, you move from doubt and despair to curiosity and expectancy. You stop asking in your life, God, where are you? No, because God is at work in ways we cannot see and he's working through ordinary ways. So why would you ask that question? Why would you ask that question? God, where are you? The child does not see the parent at work, working. But the child trusts the parent is at work. And they know they are being looked after. God is like that parent. He is at work even though we are not there at work with him to see it. That's a silent sovereignty of God and the working of God through ordinary means. So we stop asking God, where are you? What do we start asking? What are we asking now? We're asking now a different question. I wonder, Lord, what you have to with this situation. I know you have to something. I wonder what you have to. I wonder how you plan to surprise me with this situation. I wonder how you're building up through this frustrating situation. You see the difference there? We know God is at work. So we are moving from doubt to expectancy. Your life with God now becomes an exciting journey of discovery. And this is what God is inviting you to be in Jesus. My question for you this morning is this. Are you going to take him up on it? Are you taking him up on it? As you reflect on the birth of Jesus this Christmas, let this wonderful truth of the silent sovereignty of God grow your trust in him. That's the first thing. Okay? The first thing. Don't worry, we'll accelerate as we go along, right? The first truth is what? The birth of Jesus is an act of divine sovereignty. A silent sovereignty, an ordinary sovereignty, right? The second thing the birth of Jesus teaches us is this. The birth of Jesus is an act of what? Divine faithfulness. Divine faithfulness. Now, I've just said that God is working silently to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, right? But I didn't say why I think that, right? Why do I think that that is in fact what God is doing here? Why are we so confident that God wants them in Bethlehem? Why? Well, the answer is we have read the Old Testament. And we particularly read the prophecy of Micah, haven't we? And it says clearly there that the Messiah Jesus would be born in the town of Bethlehem. We know about Herod, don't we? Herod, the experts, tell him exactly the same thing when he's trying to work out where Jesus has been born, right, in Matthew. So we know God has promised that. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, who are so little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, 
from me, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. The, the ancient of days, the pre-existent son of God would be born in Bethlehem. So we know that. Maybe the second question we might ask is, why did God choose Bethlehem as a place for the Messiah to be born? Well, because the Messiah is meant to be the king of Israel from the line of David. This is David's town. This is where David grew up. This is where Samuel anointed David to be king of Israel. And this now explains why Luke underlines the relationship between Joseph and David in this account. Let's read verse 45 again. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to where? To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. The point of this passage is very clear for us to see. God is sovereignly and silently working through ordinary ways to bring Joseph and Mary. Why? Because he wants to fulfill his promise in the Old Testament. God is faithful. That's the point. I sent a voice note, WhatsApp voice note, to my sister on Monday, uh, promising to call her on Wednesday. Sadly, my wig was all over the place. And I got a voice note back from her on Thursday. Chola, what's happening? Have you forgotten again? Are you too busy again, she says. And so I finally managed to call her on Friday. Promise broken. And I had to start off my 20-minute and 30-minute phone call with her in Zambia. And she's in Zambia apologizing. What am I getting at? I'm saying... You know what I'm talking about. You are not as faithful as you should be. All of us struggle to keep our promises. Oh, even in marriage we struggle to keep them. In sickness and in health, we break that. We break that. Even if we're still in marriage, we're not as active in caring for our loved ones as we should. Oh, friends, we are faithless people. We are faithless people. But praise the Lord, God is not like us. He keeps his word, not, o- not only because of his um, faithful, uh, not only because he's, he's, he's faithful, but he's able to keep it because um, uh, he's sovereign. You need both faithfulness and sovereignty. No one in this world can guarantee that they'll have to keep their word um, despite their good intentions, right? Because we don't control anything. But God has what I'm calling faithful sovereignty. So you've learned about silent sovereignty and ordinary sovereignty. Well, that's the third thing, isn't it? God has what? Faithful sovereignty. He is faithful in how he exercises his sovereignty. We can only promise and do our best. But God is able to keep his promise because he controls all things. Do you believe God keeps his word? Well, on Sundays, yeah. Many of us say we do, right? On Sundays, right? We, we, we do. We, we are reformed people. We believe that on Sundays. But we know if we're honest during the week. How, do you behave? How are you going to behave tomorrow? Are you going to behave tomorrow as somebody who believes in the siren and the ordinary and faithful sovereignty of God? No. The chances are that by midday's Monday, you start doubting God, and, 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 and you start worrying about what, God, what is happening in your life. God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. you. You forget about that. Why is that? Because our fears often control what we do in practice. Is this not the reason we, we struggle to surrender our lives? Are you struggling this morning to surrender your life to God? I'm talking about radical surrender of life. What we are seeing in the persecuted world. For me to live is Christ. Are you struggling to live like that? Do you know why? Well, I don't need one hour with you. All I need to tell you is that it's fear. Fear. You have fear in your life. Right? 
You are afraid to surrender completely to God because, frankly, you don't trust in the faithfulness of God. Many followers of Jesus know that God commands us to hand over to him everything. And a part of us wants us to surrender to God. But we are afraid. It scares us to put all our eggs in the Jesus basket, as it were. What if I surrender this sinful relationship to God and then I end up living lonely? I never get married. What if I surrender my wallet to God and giving sacrificially to God and God does not come through for me and my family? What if I never have a holiday now? What if I forgive that person who has hurt me and then she starts treating me like a doormat? Will God really be there for me now? You see, our problem is not our situations. It is simply that we do not trust the words of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's our problem. We don't trust that. As the Father has loved me, with faithful commitment. The birth of Christ, we're seeing the love of the Father for Jesus as he weaves this event. That's another sermon, isn't it? Right? As the Father has loved Jesus, so I have loved you. You see, the challenge for us, friends, is that we do not meditate enough on the faithfulness, the sovereign faithfulness of God. We do not trust that God keeps his word to his people. Are you struggling to trust God this morning? Well, praise the Lord for Christmas. Because the truth of Christmas is here to remind you that you can take God at his word. God is faithful. And so let the truth of Christmas move you to repent of trusting yourself and to pray that God enables you to trust him. God enables you to start taking the God of Christmas at his word. So, those are two things, isn't it? The birth of Jesus is what? An act of divine sovereignty, right? It is an act of divine faithfulness, right? Thank you, Sister Zapora, for helping me along. You know, I was preaching at the angel yesterday. I told Pastor, Pastor Reagan that they need to, he needs to come here and preach a few sermons so we can be more active. They were like repeating. That's amazing down there. I, I praise God for you guys. I, I really do. I'm just saying, they are very energetic. I just want to be clear, right? Very energetic. We, I think we can learn from that. We can always learn things. My wife knows that I'm diverting here. My wife knows that every time I visit a church, I always come back to her and tell her one thing I have learned from that church. So, the third truth. The birth of Jesus is an act of divine humility. This is our final point, and we'll end. I know you are waiting uh, for lunch, right? The birth of Jesus is an act of divine sovereignty. What, what, what do I mean by that? I mean that the birth of Jesus involved God the Son himself humbling himself by putting on our human flesh and being born in very low conditions. Look at verse 6 to 7. We, we won't be able to do justice to this verse. We can never do uh, justice to any verse of the Bible, really. But especially, I would say, these two verses. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Looking this record wants us to appreciate the humility of Jesus. And he communicates this in a number of ways. We could be here the whole day. But here's the thing, just, just note this thing. Jesus, God the Son, could have chosen to be born at a secure location at Nazareth or anywhere in Israel. But he chose to be born on a journey as a pilgrim. Jesus could have chosen to be born inside a warm, comfortable house with a lot of midwives to support his mom 
But it seems it's being born outside, perhaps. Most likely, I would say. I think the picture with the stars, to me, is more clear than the one with the animals. But I don't want to <laughs> have any beef with the, those putting together the nativity. We have to interpret these things, right? The point is, Jesus is not being born in a comfortable environment. Verse 7 tells us, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And that particular phrase, I'm sure you've heard many sermons about that. Luke says, There was no place for them in the inn. It's one of the most discussed phrases in the Bible. Was it really an inn for travelers? If it wasn't in, did it have small rooms surrounding the court? And did it have places where people and animals stayed together or separate, right? Or is it a guest house, as the ESV footnote suggests? Is it possible that this was a guest room in a private home which somehow was not available, right? All very interesting questions, and I'm sure questions that our Sunday school teachers directing the nativity uh, may want to investigate if they have time. But I think the questions miss the point. Right? They miss the point. They're important for those who want to make songs and <laughs> who want to write poems about the birth of Christ, but it's not central. It's not, that's, not the issue, that's not the point of the text. The, whatever the inn was, the point of the text is that Jesus was um, not born there. <laughs> that's the point. There was no place for them in the inn, whatever the inn is. He wasn't born there. As I said, he seems to have been born outside or in a cave somewhere, as church history seems to suggest. Luke says when Jesus was born, he was laid in a manger. A manger, as we all know, is a feeding trough used for cattle, sheep, donkeys, or horses, animal stuff. In fact, archaeologists have discovered stone mangers in the host tables of Ea at Megiddo, which were cut out of limestone. Other ancient mangers were made of masonry. Um, uh, mangers were common in many homes, actually, in Israel at this time. They were at the lower section of the house where animals were kept with a room, guest room usually on top. But mangers were also put in cave stables or other stores. The manger here is most likely in a cave, according to church history. Or, as I think, just looking at the text, most likely just in the open. Again, the precise location of the manger is not the point. The point is, Jesus was led there. That's the point, right? God the Son, Jesus could have chosen to have had a warm bed for his first night, but he chose his first bed to be a place where animals fed him, a hard bed. And we might even say, even in his death, he had a hard bed, right? As he was nailed to that cross and then led into the tomb of Joseph Arithmetia. The point is the humility of Jesus from beginning to end, isn't it? And notice here that Jesus could have forced the people at the inn or at the house to welcome him with open hands. It's God. He could have arranged that. But we are told by Luke that no one prioritized him. Verse 7. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, we can spend lots of time on that. In fact, I spent the whole day this past week just meditating on that phrase. It's won't come across just now. <laughs> That's just for me, right? The point of verse 6 to 7 is to show us clearly that the birth of Jesus was an act of God the Son, Jesus, humbling himself for us. It's an act not only of divine sovereignty and divine faithfulness, it is an act of divine humility. God the Almighty, our Lord Jesus Christ, willingly put on our human flesh with all its condition, and he went further. He chose to be born in lowly conditions. Why is this important? Well, because he did this for us. Christ humbled himself in birth so that we might have a new relationship with God. We might say Christ descended to the depth to raise us up from the depth to the heights of God, as one of the hymn writers says. If you're trusting in Jesus, this truth is meant to comfort you. If you're truly born again this morning, it's meant to comfort you. As you seek to live for Jesus in this world. Jesus humbled himself for you. 
There is nothing that Jesus did on earth for himself. He had no needs as fully God. Everything Jesus did was for you. Christ was born, lived, ministered, died, and rose from death, ascended into heaven, sat at the right hand of God, and is coming in glory for who? Not for himself, he has no needs, but for you, for our benefit. Are you currently doubting God's love for you and care for you as you sit here this morning? Are you in a season of feeling anxious? Are you feeling alone as Christmas accelerates around the corner? Is there something in your life currently that's weighing you down? Some deep unsatisfaction in your life? Are you looking at your life and wish, hmm, I wish God can do more for me. I wish God can love me more and care for me more. Are you looking at your life and thinking, well, God probably doesn't, he doesn't seem to like me very much. I know he loves me, but he doesn't seem to like me very much. Because why is he just piling on things on my plate? Well, take a fresh look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This passage is saying God has already committed himself to you in his sovereignty, in his faithfulness, and in his humility. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. If there's a truth in the Bible that boggles me, is the fact that God is humble. I just can't process that. And we see it here, isn't it? The humility of God. He has descended to be born in a manger for us. The depth of Christ's humiliation, as the theologians call it here, and that first Christmas underscores the depth of his love for you. He has gone to the uttermost to make you his child. This truth of Christmas here, the, the truth of God's son, humbling himself. You know, I thought about it that this is the most important truth in the whole world. God the creator humbled himself and was born in a manger, was born in that place and led in a manger. It's mind-boggling. It's the most radical thing to have ever happened in this world. But even more radical things are coming as we go through Luke. More radical than that. This God is going to die on the cross in Jesus. God the Son humbling himself should comfort you, isn't it? Because it means that Jesus, in his human nature, not only should he comfort you that God loves you so much that he would uh, take on this humility, but he should comfort you for another reason. In that Jesus, in his human nature, you see, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and in his human nature, Jesus, our mediator, right, is more than equipped to help us. As God the Son, he is always equipped. But now we see in his human nature, Jesus is equipped to help us in, a, in another unique way, isn't it? Jesus the man knows what it means to live in humiliation. He knows what it means for people not to give him room in his life. He knows what it means to, to, to not have people putting their hands around him. He knows what it means to our parents who struggled to even ensure that he was born in a proper house. Jesus knows poverty in new want. Jesus has walked in our shoes, beloved. And we don't have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with us. Christmas reminds us we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our struggles. He humbled himself to be our complete helper. Jesus knows what it means to be a baby. What it means to be a toddler. He knows what it means to be a teenager. Because Jesus was a teenager once. Beloved, this truth is the death of all our doubts. In Christ, we have a God who is not far from us. Well, he is now physically with us. Even suffering with us and for us. All religions, you see, promise that God will protect us from evil or care for us. But only in Jesus do we see God come down and humbling himself to be with us. And of course, this is not the end of his humility, as I said. Right? 
We ultimately see the humility of Jesus on the cross, isn't it? Where he willingly died for us. The Lord Jesus, I can go on. I hope you're not bored. I can go. I think Jesus deserves to be more to be said about his humility. The Lord Jesus allowed himself, beloved, to be betrayed. Don't get tired of that. He allowed himself to be betrayed, judged, condemned, mocked, spat on, and brutally killed for you and I. How astonishing, beloved. How astonishing. The humility of Jesus leaves me speechless. I hope it leaves you speechless. That God stripped himself all of his robe of, of glory to serve wretches such as us. Christ is a definition of humility. As Andrew Murray says, <clears throat> Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling himself. Clothing himself in the garb of meekness and gentleness. To win and serve us. He is the love and condescension of God. The benefactor, the helper, the servant of all. Jesus is the incarnate humility. Even now Jesus stands in the midst of the throne of God as the humble lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If you're a true follower of Jesus this Christmas, let this glorious event, beloved, the birth of Jesus, deepen your love and trust in Jesus. So, three glorious truths, then I'll pray, then we will sing and then go off to lunch, right? What, have, what does Christmas remind us? Three things. The sovereignty. Uh, the, the birth of Jesus is an act of what? Divine sovereignty. Secondly, the birth of Christ Jesus is an act of divine faithfulness. And the birth of Jesus is an act of divine humility. Well, may the Lord help all of us to rejoice in Christ uh, as people who truly trust him as Lord and Savior. Amen.